As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello, listeners. Sorry to interrupt your show, but we've got a small favor to ask. We're currently doing a bit of a survey to find out more about you, your podcast listening habits, and the sort of adverts that are most relevant to you. If you feel like helping, please head to surveymonkey.com slash r slash athletic audio UK. That's pretty catchy, so I'll say it one more time. Surveymonkey.com slash r slash athletic audio UK. Thank you. The Totally Football Show. Today, North London Derby. Lamella crosses his legs and makes everyone wet themselves. But soon he has to go too. Meanwhile, you're in trouble. Arteta tells Aubameyang for his inconvenience, but Arsenal take a big three points anyway. Elsewhere, big wins for Brighton and Burnley shake up the battle at the bottom as we salute the weekend's stars and stories from Ian Acho to Dwight McNeil and talk Sheffield United, fans wild and Chris Wilder after Blades Boss gets cut. It's all coming up in this Totally Football show in association with Paddy Power. Oh, hello there, listener. It's the Ides of March, 15th to you, young'uns. And we're joined here on The Totally Show by Daniel Storey. Hello, Daniel. Hi, James. Also with us, Matt Davis-Adams. Matt. Hi, James. Nice to see you. It's been a while. Hmm. And also on board, Charlie Eccleshare. Hello, Charlie. Hello, James. Glenn Naylor asks, why is Charlie only ever on when Spurs play terribly? Charlie. Yeah, I mean, that may be more damning of them I don't know there, there have been a few though I think I was on um, the Burnley one is a bit of an exception that that 4-0 win which feels like a lifetime ago now right yeah yeah today being Sunday as we record this listener we've uh, we've been uh, we've been experiencing it's probably the word uh, a North London derby and also more recently the West Ham trip to Old Trafford to take on Man United I'm gonna say it was a, a day that didn't really live up entirely to its billing but it, it did have its moments Matt yeah the North London derby was um was the standout I think that that's a pretty obvious thing to say but massive win for Brighton at the bottom as well feels like it's been quite a big weekend at the uh the foot of the table so yeah moments definitely Kelechi and Nacho as well great hat trick but lovely uh tribute to mothers all around the world afterwards that was sweet oh I missed that what did he do uh, so he uh, essentially what I've just said here's this hat trick on this day all all the mothers working hard all around the world but he lost his mum when he was uh, 14 which is why you might have seen he was he was quite tearful when he completed the hat trick um, so it was just a really nice he, he puts it much better than I've kind of mangled his quotes there but it's, um, <laughs> it's worth digging out if you if you find the clip on Twitter it's very sweet I thank everyone in the club for helping me as well so I I'm really happy for this day and I'm going to use this opportunity to dedicate this hat trick to all the mothers in the world. So they should keep taking care of us. Um, I wish them all a happy Mother's Day. Daniel, what made you tear up today? Uh, well, Eric Lamella's goal was the moment, maybe the moment of the season so far, uh, in terms of standout, wow, makes you giggle. Uh, you forget there's nobody there kind of reaction. But I think the, the biggest result of the weekend was, was Burnley's win at Everton. 
I think that that was Brighton's result was great, but they could still lose to Newcastle next weekend. I think that's Burnley safe for a fifth top flight campaign in a row, which is remarkable. Mm. Seven points clear now from the bottom three, the Clarets and Dwight McNeil with a bit of a shout for the goal of the weekend himself, at least until Eric Lamella did that little flick, as I think Martin Tyler described it. Let's just quickly check on the headlines if you missed the results this weekend. Man City stay 14 points clear at the top of the table with their 3-0 win over a spirited Fulham side. Man United and Leicester, the only two other sides from the top nine teams to win this weekend. United with a narrow victory over West Ham late Sunday. Leicester, meanwhile, thumping uh, Sheffield United 5-0 earlier on. Elsewhere, Spurs got beaten by Arsenal 2-1. Chelsea were held by Leeds. Matt's all over that one. Everton lost at home to Burnley, a result, as I say, that moves the Clarets now well clear of trouble. And further down at the sharp end, Brighton's win at Southampton takes them three clear of Fulham and the bottom three. Newcastle also moving further away with their 1-1 draw with Villa. Ahead of next weekend's huge clash, the Avian derby between the Magpies and the Seagulls. Charlie, where do you want to start? Well... It's, it's hard to know. I mean, we'll start with the North London derby, if, if okay. that's okay. Yeah. Um, it feels like that was yeah the biggest game of, of the day. But I mean, with, even within that game, hard to know where to start. I mean, I, I guess Eric Lamella. We've I think spoken, we know where to start, Charlie. <laughs> briefly, uh, yeah, I mean, scores a goal, gets sent off, comes on as a sub. Pretty extraordinary performance. Um, and his second Rabona goal. Um, I mean, we may get onto it, but someone asked, um, I forget the name, you know, favourite Rabona goal. And I can mm. only really think of one scored by Eric Lamella or crosses by Tangi and Dombele. Um, but a, a quite incredible, incredible as well. His first red card for Tottenham. I, I genuinely can't believe that given he you know, plays on the edge literally every game. He's kind of leaving his foot in pushing people around and, you know, just generally being a nuisance. Um, but I think as well, you know, a lot of frustration uh, from Tottenham fans with Mourinho and the sense that they, the, this disconnect between what was ostensibly a really attacking lineup and, you know, having turned a corner recently, scored a lot of goals, playing seemingly a more enterprising way, they reverted to type with the approach, but without really the personnel to do it. I mean, if you, th- if, if I think the feeling seems to be if you're going to play that way, as they did when actually they had the most successful spell earlier in the season, when they beat City at home, they beat Arsenal at home, uh, and they played with a essentially a back six because you had Sissoko and Hoybier dropping deep. And yes, it might not have been so easy on the eye, but it, it, they were kind of owning that approach and it worked. So it just seemed really strange to go out with you know a, a genuine front four plus Ndombele behind them and play as passively as they did until Arsenal completely lost their heads when they went a man up. Um, so a very strange game to try and analyse. But well, you've got all Spurs correspondent on that, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's the, uh, the, the Spurs angle. I mean, from right. an Arsenal perspective, <laughs> another re- it's a really weird week for them. I mean, they've had two really good wins. If you've said before to any Arsenal fans you're going to win both these games, they've been absolutely delighted. And yet they've both been these kind of frazzlingly torturous wins in their different ways. I mean, Thursday was all kinds of strange. And then today they play pretty well for that first 75 minutes. And then when they get the leg up of the extra man, they seem to just completely not not know what to do. And and it does make me genuinely quite excited to see how they approach Olympiacos on Thursday with a 3-1 lead. I mean, I think they're going to completely just lose the plot and, you know, play a goalkeeper at right back or just do something really really bizarre because they just don't really seem to know how to manage games and they very very nearly threw that away at the end um you know we're, we're clinging on they barely had the ball um when they had the extra man so a really good result for them but still kind of concern at that you know ability to implode at any moment right a really good result as well with the context of the away trip to Piraeus the previous Thursday, and of course the fact that their captain was dropped from the starting lineup because he turned up late, as we understand it, and not for the first time. And the joke then doing the rounds, harsh on him to be dropped for being late when most of the Spurs side didn't show up till the 80th minute. <laughs> um, the the winning penalty, Lacazette, uh, Jose Mourinho felt it would be an insult to penalties to call that a penalty. <laughs> Uh, what was the view of the panel, Matt? It's one of those, I think probably by the letter of the law, it is a penalty. But I just think that that's so lucky for Lacazette because he's really? hit the worst shot he could possibly have hit in that position. And he's ended up getting the best outcome he could ever have imagined. The ball was going a long way wide of the goal. 
yeah. I, it's... But but once Stavinson Sanchez cleans him out like that, isn't it a, a penalty? Yes, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I think it probably is, but it helped disguise what was Lacazette's right. poor finish, which which would have happened anyway. Huge win for Arteta, Daniel. Yeah, I, I think the, the, the two positives or two main positives to draw from it are one, they won when going behind, which they, they seem to have got a habit of doing now. You know, in the last 11 games, they've beaten Southampton after conceding first, drawn with and beaten Benfica after conceding first, beaten Leicester after conceding first and now beaten Tottenham after conceding first, which suggests at least, as Charlie says, they didn't manage the game well at all when leading, but it does at least suggest some steel when they fall behind, which hasn't always been a, a habit of Arsenal's. Well, they hadn't done it before that Southampton game that you mentioned. Yeah. So, you know, they've turned something they couldn't do into something they don't quite regularly. Absolutely. And and, and also clearly because of the Aubameyang thing, which um, only ever becomes a story if Arsenal don't win that game or, or particularly if they lose that game. But the fact that they led and didn't really, you know, didn't have to use him is is great for Arteta because it gives him that mandate in the dressing room to say, you know, I don't know which one of Smith-Rowe or Odegaard or Lacazette would have been dropped for him, but Smith-Rowe was our best attacking player, I thought. Odegaard scored the first goal and Lacazette scored the second. So it makes Arteta look pretty good in that regard. Mm. Odegaard's turning into quite a, a useful addition to the side. I loved his goal in, in a game of, you know, goals with beautiful aesthetic qualities, even like a penalty, like rippling across the net. I always enjoy that. But I, I just think there's something that makes a player seem really canny when he stands at the edge of the penalty area whilst everybody else is in the six-yard box. And uh, it was Tim Stillman on, on Twitter was pointing out this is a, something that Arsenal have been working on a lot, but it just makes Odegaard in this case look like a really clever player for, OK, you guys go in that melee. I'm just going to stand here and wait for the ball to come and, and casually just pop it into the net. Lovely. Yeah, he does that a lot. He did it um, against Olympiacos as well. And on that occasion, dragged his shot wide. So, But yeah, it is clearly something they work on. And, and that goal as well, I should just mention, I mean, Tierney, had, especially in the first half, was really giving um, Doherty a torrid time. I mean, it was a, a pretty uh, chasing afternoon for him. Um, and he's been, you know, he's had a few of them. I really like that Arsenal have got that type of goal sorted because there's obviously this thing about Arteta and, and Pep Guardiola being kind of master and apprentice and Manchester City have their goal where they get to the byline, pull it back to the six-yard box and it feels like Arteta's literally three steps behind Guardiola with his players doing it from the penalty <laughs> area. So I really like that. Next up, questionable jackets. Uh, now, <laughs> before we move on though, uh, Matt Lamella. Um, yeah, it, I mean, it's an extraordinary <laughs> goal. And, and I feel like maybe Martin Tyler and Alan Smith didn't see it properly because Martin mm. Tyler said, it's Lamella, it's in. Eric Lamella has arrived with a goal. And Alan Smith said, it trundled in. And thinking, <laughs> Are you watching the same game as I am? I, th- I thought that was one of the best goals I've ever seen. Maybe we should we should give it a bit of um, pomp and circumstance. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the thinking behind it, even for a, a player as, let's be Frank Cockshaw as Eric Lamella was interesting. This is a game that he he wasn't even supposed to be playing in, and he comes on for Sun. Uh, Spurs are very much under the cosh at this point. It's their first real attempt, first time they've pretty much been up anywhere near Arsenal's goal, and he decides to to unleash that. Uh, if 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 anybody yeah. missed it, Daniel, would you like to describe what Eric Lamella did? Yeah, I mean the, the thing I really like about. Lamella with the two Rabonas he scored which you know everyone will know but is your left foot going around the back of your right or the vice versa and kicking it effectively with your good foot but in a really weird way um what I like about it is that both times he's had it he's had time to think about it like that feels like it should be something that's instinctive to someone but he had for for his goal against Astras the original Rabona scored he kind of ran on for three yards he knew what he was going to do Kane Adebayor Crowded out, might still break for Lamella. Oh, what about that? That's extraordinary. Eric Lamella with an absolute beauty. And for this one, he had the ball at his feet for a second. So he clearly could have used his right foot. This wasn't pure instinct. This was de- a deliberate notion. And also, he normally with a Rabona, you scoop it a little bit. So it goes, you know... The, the signature move of a Rabona is a cross because it lifts the ball. Whereas he kind of stunned it, almost like a snooker pot, where he just stunned it, which sent the ball along the floor and into the corner, which made it look absolutely beautiful, not least because it went through a defender's legs. 
And I mean, he hadn't scored a league goal since September 2019 uh, under Pochettino. I mean, this is not a guy who is, you know, scoring worldies on a regular basis. It was an extraordinary moment. I, I, I agree with you, Matt. I think there was um, a slightly strange downplaying of it. At least, I think it was at halftime, Freddie Jumberg said it was one of the best goals he'd ever seen. So I think it did yeah. kind of belatedly get its due. But um, yeah, I agree. <laughs> it was kind of met as if it was a sort of just nice, <laughs> decent finish into the corner. I, I, I think... Matt, you, you're probably right when you say that they may not have spotted what happened the first time. I do think as well that the Rabona doesn't enjoy quite the same luster as, say, as some of the other tricks, your flip-flaps and your your roulettes, etc. Um, I've often myself harboured a prejudice about it because it seems so very pointless. Just use the other foot. It, <laughs> it does seem to be a little bit showbetting. But this is one occasion when I felt that there was a very precise point to it, that it was only by making that gesture of wrapping his left around the back of his right foot that he was able to precisely get the angle for that tunnel on um, on uh, Thomas Partey and, and, and into the, 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 the far corner. It was magnificent. Charlie, sorry, you were saying somebody would asked favourite Rabonas ever. Did anybody else go on the YouTube to check? I didn't, but the one that instantly comes to mind is is that failed David Dunn one that kind of went down in notoriety and he, he attempts it and, and collapses and it was kind of manna from heaven for the kind of Sucre M bloopers age. And he tweeted about it today, didn't he? Welcome oh, did he? to the Rabona Club, nice. <laughs> Eric Lamella. <laughs> I think you need to be Argentine. The, 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 the finest examples, uh, Claudio Borghi in particular, but also Maradona uh, were, were known to unleash a Rabona. I do remember one that the Baggio did as well back in the 1990 World Cup. I think before anybody really even thought about them uh, over on this side of the of the um, Atlantic anyway. There you Harry go. Kuehl had it in his locker, I remember, once mm. or twice. And uh, yeah, and Dombele did it. I think it was against Norwich last season. Basically like the last minute Spurs chasing a winner and he pulled one out and it was kind of like, wow, well, welcome to the Premier League. Brilliant. The kind of slightly bigger picture stuff on Mourinho. Um, he again came out after the game and, and said that important players were hiding, uh, mm. that they didn't press in the first half and they didn't attack in the first half as he wanted them to. But, I mean, this is becoming a pattern and, and neither of them look good on him. You know, there's two explanations for that. Either the players are not listening to what you're saying or you're not communicating it properly uh, to them because this has happened before, you know, since beating Arsenal in the reverse fixture. They played seven league games against top-half teams and, and lost them all, which for a side that, that should be getting into the top four because they were top of the league in December, so certainly had a chance to. It's not a great look um, for the kind of serial winner persona that Mourinho clearly regards himself as. Particularly on a weekend which had seen so many of their rivals for a top four spot drop points. So the opportunity was there and Spurs were coming into this game on a, on a run of results that had seen them really seem to commit to playing on the front foot taking an ad- aggressive approach and and yet we were back to the old Jose in this one Charlie yeah and, and that point Daniel raises is a really good one and it was I can't remember because there are so many similar of these types of games where they did sit back off scoring it was either Palace or Wolves when I asked him was that you know was that deliberate or were you penned in and he claimed it was just kind of they were penned in and they couldn't really do anything about that which again doesn't you know that kind of makes you almost well as concerned really if you're kind of unable to change that pattern neither of them are great but yeah I mean the 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 dropping points is something that Tottenham fans and you know who knows this may just be something a pattern you you see but they feel that whenever all the teams around them drop points they then do likewise and they were actually in a position where if they'd won their games in hand then they would have gone above Chelsea uh on goal difference so it was a real opportunity, like, and they're, they're not—they're still not that far from the top four. That's the strange thing. Like they, um, you know, they can be three points off Chelsea. I think if they win their game in hand, so it's—it's it's definitely not all lost. But it was a big opportunity, and and as you say, the having played with a bit more of that attacking brio, um, I think there's just kind of bemusement at why uh, they did revert to this type and in such a kind of ineffective way. Mm. Matt, do you want to have the last word on this? Uh, the Gareth Bale revival didn't last for very long, did it? And it was uh, quite telling the way that he didn't acknowledge Jose Mourinho when he came off the pitch, I thought. Um, maybe a little bit more to come from that story in the coming days and weeks. 
just also on that really quick like it it was kind of frustrating because they took they, they made these defensive substitutions and then conceded quite soon after so they were in this position where they'd used up all their subs and could actually then have really done with Gareth Bale or another attacking option off the pitch but obviously there was an injury in the first half but they slightly hamstrung themselves mm. uh, hamstrung literally Ooh, yeah. <laughs> young midson of course who's uh, presumably going to be out for a while at a, uh, a delicate time yeah maybe he came, he came back quicker than they thought earlier in the season so maybe Maybe it'll be okay. Super human son. Right. Anyway, <laughs> uh, right. Well, uh, let's then, uh, after this, uh, get on to Sunday night's extravaganza at Old Trafford. And they're off. The plucky youngster on the inside has started fast. Number seven now going down the outside. The big fella in the middle is racing to make up the ground. A late charge and across the line. Yes, the ball is across the line. Excellent header from the big fella. To celebrate an unbelievable week of racing and football, get a completely free £5 bet on Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday of Cheltenham and a £5 risk-free bet builder on Chelsea v Atletico Madrid. Paddy Power. Max one, £5 free bet per customer per day. Racing free bets available 48 hours before first race each day. Pre-match bet builder bets only. Minimum legs two plus. Max cash refund £5. If it loses, T's and C's apply. 18 plus. Be gambleaware.org. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Man United won West Ham nil Sunday night. Uh, both teams with players absent: Martial and Cavani for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's side. No Lingard available, of course, against his parent club, and Fornals not available either for David Moyes. West Ham failing to manage a single shot on target, although they did they did have chances late on in this game. What what did you make of this this match? I just I mean it's really difficult for West Ham because um they clearly came to set up and fr- frustrate Manchester United, which is one of those plans that is almost better if you concede after 20 minutes because it, it then changes the game and you can at least decide, right, well, now we know what we have to do. We have to push forward a little bit more. As they just sat back and sat back and sat back, they kind of, they'd done it so long that the only way they could then change the game was by bringing on two attacking substitutions and then Manchester United had them on the counter. And West Ham did have chances, but, you know, Greenwood hit the post. United had a, a several kind of three-on-twos or three-on-threes that they could have made more of. And... I think it just it just shows the gap. Slightly ironically, I think that defeat just shows how such a good season West Ham have had because they are light years away from from Manchester United in terms of personnel, and they are only or were only um, two positions away at kickoff, which is astonishing, really. Um, you know, it's not a game to draw any serious conclusions. I know, I know, in the studio, Bobby Zamora on Sky was pretty upset at half time that Moyes hadn't come out and attacked more, but you know, Manchester United are very happy at picking off teams that try and attack them, particularly at, at Old Trafford. So you're kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't. And I, I, I thought it was a really poor game quality-wise, I have to say. I think Manchester United failed in the first half. They just didn't move the ball quick enough. They just they almost expected West Ham to kind of let them create chances. And with nine, ten men behind the ball, they just weren't going to do that. And and the goal came from an own goal from a set piece. And that was just about that, really. It was a Yeah, I thought it was a poor game. Mm. Sasu Haino says, Solskjaer didn't make any substitutions despite several players being totally fatigued. And uh, Not sure what the thinking behind that would be. It's a busy run of games this for United, who were also in action on Thursday night in what was for them a disappointing 1-1 draw with Milan. Mm-hmm. Just that they only, I mean, they only had Ahmad Diallo and Shela Shatire really as attacking options on the bench. Uh, there, isn't, there wasn't an awful lot there. I mean, and I suspect... Uh, Diallo might will probably either start probably start against Milan, maybe come off the bench, but they need to be careful with the, the, the kind of the minutes for the youngsters. But yeah, I mean they're right; they looked absolutely shattered at the end. Bruno, whatever Solskjaer says, has not got unlimited resources of energy and just <laughs> looks tired. Yeah, I mean he started all but one Premier League game, 
this season is that right but yeah I mean I know Solskjaer's got a bit more experience but you see it with Arteta he, he's often very reluctant seemingly to make substitutions and I, and I do wonder if that's something um, that you develop uh, as you go on as a manager a bit and I, I wonder if there's like a slight lack of confidence to, to take that risk in games where you're already ahead but you do you just feel you need to change things especially in this season where you know everyone is just clearly exhausted but I agree with Daniel it had that feeling I mean do you ever feel sometimes that fourth Sunday game even as a viewer you're a little bit like oh a bit fatigued and sometimes the team seems to be playing that way as well it's as if they too have just been sat watching football all day and are kind of going through the motions I have no idea what you're talking about there. (laughs) (laughs) Much earlier in the day, when we were still young and fresh and all that kind of thing, Leicester played Sheffield United. The Blades, of course, had spent the weekend before the game uh, uncoupling from the manager who'd been their leader and symbol for the last four or five years, Chris Wilder. It's a move that has caused plenty of comment. Uh, Here with an informed view on the kind of whys and wherefores of it all, we're joined by the Blades correspondent for The Athletic, Richard Sutcliffe. Richard, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you've written this up uh, today under a headline for the ages, I can't do this bollocks anymore. And I should be clear, that's that's a quote from Wilder. That's not... Um, anyway, and that's what he was saying three months ago. It is, yeah. To be honest, I did feel like that after the Leicester City game. Uh, personally, it, was, uh, it wasn't the best. But yeah, that was uh, Chris's response. It was after Crystal Palace away, which was the first game of uh, 2021. And, uh, you know, it had been a bad, well, it was a bad game anyway, but tensions were rising behind the behind the, uh, behind the the scenes and he'd just had enough, basically. He wasn't talking to anyone particularly, he just sort of shouted it. You know, I've spoken to people who were in the dugout and said, yeah, it wasn't aimed at anybody. It was just sheer frustration on his part. All right, so this had been, this had been coming for, for the last couple of months. Oh, yeah, it's been a gradual, gradual build, really. It's, uh, it's what, like March now, I'd, I'd probably say over four or five months it, it, relations just got worse and worse and then eventually became uh, became inevitable really in my mind right what was behind the split it wasn't about particularly their performances in the league from the reports i've read no very much you know you, you'd look from the outside and you think well obviously the club's fed up with the league position they're getting relegated and that's been it but no not at all like prince abdullah came out in december just before southampton away and he says even if we go down the best man Best manager to bring Sheffield United back will be Chris Wilder, um, which he thought, well, that's great to hear. But in that same interview, he did actually say as well that he thought Sheffield United paid wages that were on a par with the Premier League, which did actually wind Chris Wilder up. You know, he wasn't happy with that because he's, he's certainly felt that there's not been an appreciation at board level in terms of what Sheffield United are up against in the Premier League. Um, I, I saw a... a um, a survey, I think it was Forbes, where the average wage in the Premier League, this is the end of 2019, was about 60, 65,000, whereas Sheffield United is more or less about half that for the average wage. And he just he, he just didn't feel he could compete in, in the same market as the other 19 Premier League clubs. So, But he didn't think there was an admission of that at board level. At the same time, you can, you can kind of understand why the club would maybe want to take a different direction in terms of who's in charge of signings, which I think was one of the bones of contention. When you see the money that They've spent under Chris Wilder and, and, and the kind of lack of any results from it. Oh, very much so. You know, if you've, you look at uh, the way that the recruitment's gone, you know, particularly this season, but also last season, if we're being honest as well, you know, if, if the money that's been spent, any board worth its salt, would reassess its operations and see how it wants to maybe make changes going forward. But, you know, Chris is a, a manager who, you know, certainly at Sheffield United, and when he's come up through the ranks, to be honest, at smaller clubs like Oxford and Northampton, who obviously it's, it's often it's a smaller operation. So the manager does everything, and he's done that. At Sheffield United, you know, if there was an a, an appointment to be made in the academy, he would make it. Whereas the club, you know, they want to, you know, they want more, well, not more of a say, because obviously they do have a say. They have the final say on everything, but they, you know, they they, they didn't really want to leave it just in a small uh, a small circle of uh, of people, which was basically Chris, the head of recruitment, Alan Nil. And a couple of others, which uh, you know they wanted to broaden it out a little bit. He's come up through the ranks uh, with, with the blades and before. But there was a lovely line in commentary to sum up the journey that they'd kind of been on together. His first away win with Sheffield United was at Oxford United. His uh, last away win was at Man United. Uh, 
the kind of arc from League One to Premier League in three seasons and that ninth place finish last season when I think a lot of people had him as, as manager of the year. Given the fact that above all of this, he's a local lad, how much is this going to hurt the club with the supporters? Oh, yeah, the reaction, you know, the, the supporters are, are angry. And it's, uh, you know, obviously it's horrible not having fans at games at the moment, but the board have probably got off lightly by the fact that there weren't the usual sort of three and a half thousand in the corner at Leicester uh, on Sunday because, uh, you know, there's, uh, I won't say that, you know, there's, you know, revolution in the air or anything like that, but fans aren't happy because, you know, as they always think, one of their own. You know he's left the club, and and let, let's not let's not beat around the bush. Sheffield United have lost a very very good manager, and wherever he fetches up next, I'd put money on him being successful. So there's a lot of pressure on now Sheffield United getting this right because, you know, the, we, we've seen what's happened before when Sheffield United got relegated last time. They got rid of Neil Warnock, which I thought was a mistake. Brought in Brian Robson. And it took 12 years to get back and six years and half of that was spent in League One because the club just lost its way. And uh, obviously it's a big, big fear at the moment that history could repeat itself. Mm. Boy, that's a bleak prospect. Uh, Richard, uh, thank you very much uh, for giving us that, uh, that, little, that little window into what's been going on with the Blades. No problem at all. Richard Sutcliffe from The Athletic. And you can read his piece, I Can't Do This Politics Anymore, uh, on that uh, site right now, actually. <laughs> um, it, it's it's understandable, I guess, given the issues they've had, but it's a, it's a very sad to see the, uh, the association end that way. Do all managerial jobs, do they all end like this? I, yeah, I think they do. I, think, I, I just think there's a bit of a, a disconnect at Bramall Lane because... The, Every club outside the Premier League wants to get into the Premier League, but it's very hard to catch up with that, that rapid success, particularly when it's then followed by almost immediate relegation. And, you, you know, you look at Sheffield United's training ground and it's it's championship level, quite frankly. You look at the wages they pay and, and Richard's absolutely right, it's championship level. And he has created such a, a an over expectation of what the next manager is going to achieve that y- you can see why no one will be able to to match that because the squad is also championship level and that's partly because of the players they've brought in that I don't think are good enough and partly because um, the club isn't geared up to to being in the Premier League yet it all happened too almost too quickly although they wouldn't change any of it for the world I'm sure I don't think this is the worst thing for for Chris Wilder in terms of his career prospects because he he leaves now with everybody saying you know he's been he's been terribly wronged. I mean, obviously it's it's going to hurt him the fact that it's his team, but it, it does kind of gloss over the fact that he's managing a team that have lost twenty two of twenty eight games this season. I think it'd be pretty hard for him to to turn it round in the space of one preseason for Sheffield United. Whereas if he has a clean break and I don't know takes the West Brom job in the summer, you'd suspect that he'd have a pretty good chance of taking them straight back up. So whilst it's a painful one for him now, in terms of his long-term career prospects, might end up not being the worst thing. I mean, it's a weird one, isn't it, with managers like him? You look at someone like Eddie Howe, who did did such a great job at Bournemouth and is seemingly out of the picture when you know jobs that you'd think would be a good match for him come up. I, I'd be really curious to know what Chris Wilder's next move is. You know, I, I saw, I think it was Richard was saying in the kind of uh, discussion on The Athletic that he thought he probably would have to take uh, Championship Club as his next job, which, um, you know, seems pretty pretty harsh on someone who's done such an amazing job when you think that, you know, clubs in the Premier League will still appoint Sam Allardyce and people like that. I mean, you'd think Chris Wilder, that there would still be a really good Premier League job for him. Well, as it stood, they were in action without him uh, this Sunday afternoon at Leicester. Uh, getting beaten 5-0. Matt, I know you want to talk about Ian Acho, the hat-trick. His first hat-trick, I think, of his professional career. Yeah, and it seemed to bring something else out in Jamie Vardy as well. You know, he he turned provider. He's been criticised for his his lack of goals of late, and and that's something that's been levelled at Ian Acho throughout his career, actually. And and he couldn't have had more obliging opponents today in a, a Sheffield United side. Who, you know, the big thing about them this season is that nobody's been been hammering them. Well, that that totally went out the window today. So it was a great day to be a striker at the <laughs> King Power Stadium. But yeah, he definitely took advantage of it, uh, Ian Acho. I saw him playing there. Uh, 
in an FA Youth Cup final at Stamford Bridge in might have been 2015, 2016 for, for Man City. And he looked good then. And it, you felt that, you know, he, he might be a reliable backup to Aguero. And, and the fact that that didn't happen. And then he ended up looking like an unreliable backup for Jamie Vardy. Uh, it, it makes this turnaround in the last couple of months even more impressive, I think. David Weston asking, is he an actual underrated? He has a Premier League goal every 173 minutes, while Vardy has one every 168 minutes, and Vardy gets the penalties. They look very good together, says David, backing up your point, Matt. Yeah, that's that's the thing, is that Brendan Rodgers basically came up with this plan to account for... um, well, account for any injuries with the attacking midfielders, but also to try and give Jamie Vardy a bit more space, and uh, I guess the plan was intended to, yeah, to get Vardy scoring. And actually, it's been the opposite. He's Vardy almost did a kind of Kane-esque role yeah, against Sheffield same. United, where he dropped deep and linked play. And we know he likes tracking back. And I think Rodgers tried to refine that in him as a lone striker because he needed him on the last shoulder with with energy. When he's got two there, Vardy, it almost feels like Vardy can get kind of get busy again and start being a bit of a pest. And I suspect that's how Vardy thinks the goals will start coming again by kind of working, working, that's his ethic. And in the meantime, Iheanacho's feasting off the chances. Yeah, it's interesting because you've had kind of the reverse situation. I think a lot of people we talked about Aubameyang at Arsenal earlier, that he was kind of being modelled on Vardy as that kind of you know early 30s striker, trying to just get him to play in smaller spaces. And that's had quite a you know a revitalising effect in Aubameyang's season. So it'd be interesting if you kind of reverse that with Vardy. But yeah, I thought the same thing, Daniel, about the Kane comparison. It was interesting how with these out and out number nines you you often don't get to see that side of him so it was it was it was quite cool seeing that um but yeah i mean i thought sheffield united yeah for a team that that has been a kind of one redeeming feature as they've rarely lost heavily it did look like heads were dropping they just by the end you know there were players just stopping running and that sort of thing and you, you do kind of fear for the end of their season mm. as for leicester they've got man united next weekend in the cup the fa cup quarterfinals uh, their top four status is looking more and more solid now. Eight points clear of fifth place West Ham. Uh, slightly closer to the Hammers are Chelsea in fourth. With these clean sheets, you're spoiling us, Mr Tuchel, but it might might be nice to get a goal once or twice. Hey, Matt, you were at Ellen Road. I sure uh, was, yeah. Watching Bielsa and Tuchel on the touchline. Were you right behind them then? I was I was kind of next to the Chelsea dugout. Um, normally at these uh, pandemic ball games, you kind of, or I am at least, right up in the gods. Um, but here, because I need to get straight to the touchline afterwards to do some post-match stuff, they said, oh, just sit in the second row there. So I'm next to, to the Chelsea dugout thinking I'll have a listen to what, what Thomas Tuchel's saying. And I got to hear some of it, but a lot of it was drowned out by Marcelo Bielsa, who I didn't realise is an utterly, utterly terrifying man. Um, you know, we hear about his, his tactical genius and whatever, but my goodness me, there was a point where Luke Ayling went up for a header with Mason Mount and Ayling got hurt and went down and all you could hear was Bielsa screaming, you are all right, for you this is nothing, get up! <laughs> and so he just sprang up to his feet and continued. It was the most extraordinary thing I've ever seen and even Tuchel looked a little bit rattled by it. Um, you know, he was kind of giving his, come on guys, that's good, good stuff. Hey, Chili, be a bit more serious. And then there's Bielsa just screaming the place down. It Was um... was that said via his translator? <laughs> this is the thing. He said that in English, Charlie. That was the only thing in English that I heard him say. That The rest of it was, por qué? every time a pass went astray. Maybe the translator's there just to kind of act as a buffer for a television audience between that raw Bielsa-ness, which <laughs> is so terrifying on the touchline. Uh, I don't know if we'd be ready for that. Uh, you actually suggest that he's the loudest voice you heard during this lockdown period, ahead of uh, Kasper Schmeichel and Connor Cody. Connor Cody's been particularly loud, has he? Yeah, I mean, Cody's trick is to uh, have the name of a teammate ready and then pick a swear word and the intonation of that swear word as to whether the uh, the advice he's giving is positive or negative. So All it's right. either Neto, f***ing A, or Neto, f***. And, and that was it. Whereas Kasper Schmeichel just runs the game, essentially, for the team. His is the only voice you can hear. But yeah, dwarfed by Marcelo Bielsa. But um, you can tell it was a nil-nil game that not much happened in because the communication was very much the thing that I picked up on. But I really um, thought Kevin Friend 
did a brilliant job, the referee, in communicating with the players in this game. There are a couple of standout moments. One again involving Ailing, a 50-50 challenge. Uh, Kevin Friend gave it as a, as a Chelsea free kick and Ailing turned around to him and said, oh, what, what are you doing? That, that's clearly mine. And he said, you know what, Luke, you might be right, but it's a 50-50 challenge. It happened really quickly. I've got to make a decision one way or another. And it just totally took the sting out of Ailing's anger and dissipated it immediately. I thought it was really, really clever. And the other one was somebody else on the Leeds bench was shouting obscenities at him over a decision. And he just blew his whistle, stopped the game and said, you don't need to shout at me. We're in an empty stadium. <laughs> and carried on with the game. And again, just totally took the sting out of it um, magnificently. Brilliant. As regards the game, Matt, uh, I mean, you mentioned the kind of the fiery Latin quality of, of Bielsa and, and Thomas Tuchel's rather more neat and tidy instructions. Was that kind of almost a microcosm of the football as well that we thought maybe Leeds might disrupt the, the kind of perfect German sterilised Chelsea game? And is that what happened? A little bit. I mean, the pitch played a, a big part in that too. I wouldn't. It's easy to offer that up as an excuse, but it is extraordinary when you see it up close. It's essentially just a sandpit. But um, I asked Thomas Tuchel about about Chelsea's inability to score goals at the moment when I interviewed him afterwards, and he said we lack maybe a bit of determination and pure desire to score goals, which I thought mm-hmm. was a slightly um, spiky comment. But you know, he's he's capable of chucking one of those in every now and then. He also admitted that he probably ought to have brought Olivier Giroud on. Um, and I think that might have made a difference in this game. Was that because of Atletico Madrid and the, the second leg coming up next yeah, week? I think so, yeah. yeah. Uh, he would have ideally, I think, had rather have started Mateo Kovacic as well, who's, who seems to be a big favourite of, of his. But with Jorginho and Mount suspended for Atletico Madrid, he couldn't risk losing Kovacic to injury. Mm. I remember a couple of weeks ago, I was saying, Matt, it rem- the Ellen Road pitch reminded me of that Chelsea stand pit they had at Stanford Bridge. Do you remember in kind of the, uh, the early noughties? I think like the, the sort of sand pit derby. I can't think there could have been a worse pitch in the Premier League since then to, to what's at Ellen Road now. Certainly in Europe. I'm, I th- I'm trying to think, was it the Stadio Olimpico that they used to spray paint the sand green? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's that fam- also that famous topical plug alert, Jimbo. There's that famous... A phenomeno Ronaldo goal against uh, Spartak Moscow, ah, yeah. isn't there? Mm, on the sandpit, and there's a there's a podcast on Il Phenomeno if you're interested. <laughs> there certainly is, and it's called Golazzo. But don't run off and listen to that because we've got loads of good stuff coming up uh, still on this edition of Totally. Uh, speaking of Chelsea and goals, by the way, the Chelsea women are certainly piling them in. Meantime. They had the Women's Continental Cup final on Sunday at Vicarage Road and they put six past Bristol City. How much is that now for the season for them against Bristol City? Yeah, they'd be disappointed with that because they got nine against them in the league uh, when they, when they met earlier in the and campaign. six on the other meeting, I think as well. Yeah, right? yeah, it's um, it's pretty incredible. I mean, Bristol City had obviously done done well to get to the to the final, not least because they've got a manager in in temporary charge while their regular manager's on maternity leave. Um, but yeah, shout out to Frank Kirby here. She missed last year's final. She had a, a really serious illness, which which almost ended her career. Uh, she was she was keen to make up for lost time on Sunday. Of the six goals Chelsea scored, she got two and assisted the other four, which is pretty phenomenal. Incredible, incredible. Uh, Chelsea will be going up against Wolfsburg, uh, last year's runners up in the Women's Champions League. Those games are in a couple of weeks' time. Matt, I think uh, third, yeah, third week of March and then first week of April for the returns. But yeah, they they, they miss Man City on the route to the final and Leon as well. So that that's pretty big. Ooh, yeah, hope is that right. they can um, they can go all the way this time. Man City will be up against Barcelona. Very good. After this, let's get down to the big results at the bottom of the table. This episode is supported by season three of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. At the bottom of the table, Brighton won at Saints, Burnley won at Everton. Newcastle got a point against Villa and Fulham lost. So, as mentioned, Burnley looked pretty safe, seven points clear. 
same as Saints, but somehow they don't look quite as secure. Brighton move above Newcastle. The Seagulls now three points clear of Fulham and the bottom three. Newcastle, though, also slightly extending their margin to two points. What did you make of Brighton and the pretty terrific early kickoff on Sunday? We've talked about Brighton a lot and this, you know, the kind of, <laughs> I just think there was like an XG 11. It seems to be this obsession with how they, you know, they miss chances. And so I have to say, I, I was quite relieved for them just because it just must be so infuriating supporting them at the moment. And I loved their second goal. That was one of my favourite goals of the weekend. Uh, the pass into Welbeck, his touch, and then such a nice finish. Um, and I, I think there was that fear, everyone watching it, that they would you know, again, somehow not win a game that they really should have done. So um, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a really good game. Charlie, if you enjoy XG, you'll be delighted to know this is only the second time this season that they've won with a lower XG than the team they've beaten. So all sorted then, Daniel? Yeah, I mean, the thing with Brighton is that that Newcastle game is now, the ball is in their court. They They are in the position of advantage, which they wouldn't have been if they've lost. But if they then go and lose to Newcastle and give Newcastle a bump, then um, it counts for naught because Newcastle are now a team they should beat. They won 3-0 at St James's Park. They completely outclassed Newcastle and they are good enough and well-drilled enough to do exactly the same next weekend. And if they don't do that, then that is a far, far worse result than, than losing to Southampton would have been today. So, yeah, I'm kind of... As ever with Brighton, I don't want to overboard any praise because they constantly let you down with everything they then do. So, yes, I'm reserving judgment for now. What about Southampton? Should they be worried? Seven points above the bottom three, but 10 defeats now in 12 games. And they didn't look like they were particularly concerned in the way they approached the second half. (laughs) Matt Davies-Adams hasn't picked them to go down, so they are absolutely (laughs) fine. Yeah, uh, yeah, Daniel's right. They, no, they, they, they've got just enough, haven't they? they? They get a couple of the players that they're missing back. It's obviously massive to not have Oriol Romay for the rest of the season for them. But, I mean, you're looking really at them picking up, what, two wins or maybe a win and, and three or four draws. They've got Crystal Palace at home. Uh, they've got West Brom. Mm, they've got Fulham. You think they've got enough? In the games they've got left, you think they've got enough to get the few points left that they need? What um, what did Steve Bruce think, uh, Matt, of their 94th minute equaliser, bringing a potentially vital point in their battle to escape the drop? This is going to be good. Charlie doesn't know he does the impressions. This is going to be <laughs> golden for Charlie. Well, you know, obviously at the end, Jamal's got us out of a, a sticky situation there, and and we're supporters, and 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 we're chairman can can be happy. You know, we hope. You know, we try. That's what we do. It was not our best performance by some distance, but but we're in there and we'll fight and we'll give it a go. Excellent. Something like that, probably, I would imagine oh, yeah. he said. Yeah. Yeah. Word for Almost word, word for word is post-match interview. <laughs> that is good. <laughs> Huge goal in the 94th minute after Ollie Watkins had had one deflecting off uh, Kieran Clark in the 86th minute. Uh, yeah, potentially a huge point, that, in the battle against the drop. Next up, though, let's turn our thoughts to possibly the performance of the weekend, the battling Clarets, Burnley, Away at Everton. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power. Nicely for McNeil. McNeil oh, comes inside his man it's nicely. It's Looks to have a shot. Oh, oh what a goal. What a goal. What a goal from what Dwight goal. McNeil. It's his first goal away from Turf Moor, <laughs> and he's finished it in style. Everton won Burnley 2. This was Saturday tea time. That is top notch. And uh, certainly the first half was all about one man, Daniel. Yeah. Well... Yes, it was about <laughs> it was about Chris Wood's brilliance. But oh yeah, it's, that. It, it's Sean two, Dyche. Two men. It's Sean Dyche all the time for me. I just I, I I know I'm guilty of not giving him enough praise because the football is occasionally hard to watch and occasionally pretty agricultural, but it's a remarkable feat. I, I their five most used players this season cost them eleven million pounds to buy, which in the Premier League is just witchcraft. It really is. And the the other thing is that you know you've, we've seen with Chris Wilder that 
clubs like Burnley and Sheffield United, you know, non-financial elite Premier League clubs, every year is a year zero. You don't get any insurance policy for what happened before because your peers buy better players than you have every summer. So the, the, the obvious answer that is to change what has happened, you know, to find a plan B, which Chris Wilder was accused of not doing. But Sean Dice doesn't do that either. They play exactly the same every season and yet it works and they stay up every single season. Wasn't this a different kind of Burnley performance though? In their yeah. in their exciting kind of custard and claret kit, which I thought looked very jazzy, they 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 kind of swarmed all over that the hapless toffees. But um, yeah, but that's what they what they do is they work incredibly hard. Yes, there are slight shifts in that, and sometimes they try and press teams, and sometimes they 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 sit back and just go direct. Although they normally go direct, let's be honest. But there's just that huge work ethic, and we've been talking all season about fatigue and about teams looking empty. And I know Burnley haven't gone. Huge, you know, hugely far in the cup competitions. They haven't had European football, but they just look to have so much more energy than Everton. Um, and they do this every season. You know, they last season they took thirty points from the last sixteen games, which was would have put them fourth in the division over that period. This season, they're again. I, I thought they'd go down. They took two points in the first seven games. They weren't scoring any goals until Christmas, and then now they're scoring and winning away at Everton. And it is remarkable. It really is. Um, I'd say it was the first half was all about one one man. It turned out there were about three involved because Chris Wood and then you say Sean Dyche. But the fellow I was thinking of was, of course, Dwight McNeil, who set up Chris Wood's goal and then produced that wonderful little move to set himself up and then the the, the, the curling shot to the, the far corner for, for the, the second goal uh, from the Clarets. And he looked so delighted about it as well. Yeah, he's a very much, he's a, he's a, a difference maker at Burnley because he's a, a type of player and an age of player that they don't really have. He's a, um, he, it's almost ludicrous. You look at their statistics, you know, their dribbles completed, their crosses, their chances created, and he's by so far and away their most dominant in every area. And he's still a kid, you know, he's still eligible for the under 21s, which is, I think, partly because he plays for Burnley, you assume he's. 25 26 but uh he's a youth product which is unusual there um but yeah he he if he was a, a, a i don't normally like doing this but i'm confident with him i think if he was at a bigger club there would be much more talk about Dwight McNeil because um it's not easy sometimes playing in that midfield when the ball's going over your head a little bit and he's the one that demands the ball and says no we can do something different here so yeah he's he's the addition that in terms of being a real key player this season i think if that was Lionel Messi who'd scored that goal, then we'd still be talking about it. <laughs> yeah, that's I why I like <laughs> saying it. Shout out as well for Josh Brownhill, who was uh, really, really dogged. I feel bad in dogged because that's probably the, the stereotype that we have of Burnley, but also had that quality on the ball going forward as well. And he was essentially their big summer signing, you know, somebody coming in from Bristol City and that, that's very Burnley in and of itself isn't it? Um, one other player who, who might benefit a lot from this game would be Nick Pope with that injury to Jordan Pickford coming just before the international break. Nick Pope starts a couple of games for England and does well, you know, it might be his his pair of gloves to lose for the Euros. Hmm. Everton uh, losing uh, Jordan Pickford to a recurrence of that rib injury just before half-time in this game. Uh, Robin Olsen was unavailable apparently uh, after his uh, family were threatened with a machete during a break-in at their home last weekend. Uh, so who actually came in? Uh, he's called João Virginia. He is uh, a Portuguese goalkeeper I've seen a couple of times in, in PL2. And actually, I felt feel like Luca Dean should get a retrospective three-match ban because we had a situation at the end of the game when a young rookie goalkeeper was stood in front of his opposite number at a corner, ready to cause some chaos slash score the equalising goal. And Dean, you hit the first man with said corner and denied us all what would have been a wonderful moment. So yeah, three match ban, please, for that. Mm. Um, Matt, how's your Carlo Ancelotti impression? <laughs> not good. He's far too cool for me to be able right. to impersonate. So, I could do Steve Harsh Bruce, Bruce all day, Harsh but not Carlo. Steve yeah. Bruce, yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Everton's home record has drawn plenty of comment. It's their fifth defeat in the last seven games at Goodison 2021. Afterwards, Carlos saying, all the games when we try to play with more quality, we lose the spirit that usually helps us get results. It is a big disappointment. What does he mean by that? Right. They just play with this horrible lethargy at Goodison Park. You know, they've taken 29 points in their 14 away games this season, which is 
far more than Everton have, have done before in, in recent seasons. But it's not that they lose at home, it's that they've lost at home to Newcastle and to Fulham and to West Ham and to Leeds and Burnley. You know, there just seems to be a, a real lethargy to their performance. I, I think one factor is, which is certainly true, is that Alan and Abdullah Decore have only played once together, I think, since December. And it now sounds like Decorey is going to be out for the rest of the season, which is massive for them because it's the energy of the two of them together that makes things tick. But that's no excuse for for some of their results. They just, I don't know what it is, and that is kind of cryptic for Ancelotti, and that he's kind of saying something by saying very little, and makes well, us all wonder what it means. But well, he seems just to be saying that if they try and if they if they get their backs to the wall and they just concentrate on keeping it simple and and battling away that they'll get a result. But the second they relax too much, as you say... Uh, but then that that would be fine for a freak result. But this is the pattern of their season, which yeah. suggests that if Ancelotti's thought about it long enough to tell the media, then he's certainly thought about it long enough to have told his players a fair long time ago. And nothing seems to be changing. You know, they've only... I don't think they've only won one home league game since mid-December, which is not good enough. Mm. And in mid-December, they played in front of fans, didn't they, when they won? Um, so, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a bit wary. Again, I feel it's maybe a bit reductivist to always talk about how much of a difference that makes. But it does feel with Everton, you know, given that it is a ground that we hold up as being you know, very difficult for away teams to play at, um, then maybe that has had a factor. It does take away some of the intimidation factor. Mm. Also this weekend, Man City had that 3-0 win away at Fulham. Fulham had a good first half keeping the citizens at bay. And then it all kind of fell apart 15 minutes after the restart and City ran out 3-0 winner. Sergio Aguero getting his first Premier League goal since January 2020. John Stones, meanwhile, up to five for the season, I think, is it? Uh, four of those in the last 10 Premier League appearances. This was a Man City team without Kevin De Bruyne, Phil Foden, Ilke Gundogan and Riyad Mahrez and Raheem Sterling uh, rested because Pep can, and also because Borussia Mönchengladbach on Tuesday. Fulham, for all their recent revival, still very much in the hot seat for that uh, you know relegation thing. Crystal Palace, meanwhile, getting a home win Saturday in their clash with West Brom. A 1-0 victory, Milovojevic with the penalty, Daniel. Yeah, probably, probably the end of, of, of West Brom. I think we consigned Sheffield United to relegation a long time ago, but I think this is probably it now for West Brom. They're not, they probably need 17 points now, which they're just not going to get from nine games because they've only got 18 in 29. Um, and I, I just thought it was really interesting looking at, at West Brom. Allardyce has had 16 games in charge. They conceded 24 in the first eight. He then decided to make them really tight defensively, which he kind of has done but they've only scored three goals in the last eight. So it's, it's just, the, the squad just isn't good enough. You either you solve one issue and another one pops up. And I think the suspicion is that Allardyce basically took that job because it was available rather than because it was a good fit or that he had really any chance of keeping them up. I mean, the, these are you know two clubs. I mean, West Brom will probably be in the Championship uh, next season but just linking it back we're talking about Chris, uh, Chris Wilder and I wonder if someone you know with Roy Hodgson his contract expires at the end of the season would they look at someone like him that that to me would feel like quite a sensible appointment it feels like Eddie Howe to Palace and Wilder to West Brom maybe summer, really me, but, Damien Cunningham yeah. writing in saying with busted flush Sam surely destined for the manager of Scrappy says Damien with his agenda along with Pardew and Pulis crikey uh, who should West Brom appoint to see them back to the Premier League? David Wagner would be my first choice, says Damien. That's an interesting one. David Wagner, who's not enjoyed the rosiest of times since leaving the Premier League as part of the uh, miserable Schalke experience down the rung end of the, the Bundesliga. Um, or, or his final season in England, hmm. <laughs> we should say as well. Yeah. yeah, very much so. There's still one Premier League game to come from this weekend. It is Wolves against Liverpool which will be with you later on today if you're listening on Monday. And, of course, there's been loads of exciting football beyond the top division, which we'll touch on in a second or two after we hear from our new friend Carl Monaghan from Paddy Power. Thank you, James, and hello again, listeners. 
Liverpool looked a lot less shambolic in midweek in the Champions League, didn't they? It seems that not facing those cold, empty stands at Anfield is a real plus for Klopp's men. The fragile Merseysiders are odds-on at 4-6 to six to win at Wolves on Monday. Too short for some. Having lost six of their last nine, a Liverpool win against a tricky Wolves side who are a tough nut to crack is hard to foresee. A share of the spoils, though, looks about right at 27-10. And Jota, to be first goal scorer at 9-2 against his former club, looks the way to get some enjoyment out of what may be a dour affair. From PL to CL and Tuesday sees Manchester City take on Borussia Mönchengladbach with a two-goal lead already in the bank. The Bundesliga side have imploded since their manager Marco Rose did a deal with Dortmund to swap dugouts next season. They've lost six out of six since the big announcement. Ouch. In terms of some value, let's go with a German to score against the Germans. Gundogan has looked right at home in the penalty area of late and the 6-5 on offer for him to score any time will certainly appeal. Wednesday sees Chelsea play host to Atletico Madrid, and since Thomas Tuchel has taken the reins at the Blues, they've only shifted two goals. VAR said yes in the first leg, and Giroud's overhead kick is all that separates them now. But I just wonder, will Diego Simeone smell blood? Chelsea's rearguard gets all the plaudits, but their attack has locked bite. The same issue can't be said for Atletico, though, as their front line is all teeth, with Luis Suarez leading the line. The Uruguayan has fired his side to the top of La Liga with his 18 league goals to date, and looks as hungry as ever. Atletico Madrid to qualify is 16-5, and we'll see plenty of takers. You can find out those odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. You can sign up for a subscription with The Athletic listener and find yourself with unrivaled coverage on a particularly interesting-looking business end of the season. You'll get all the articles, all the podcasts ad-free and a special Q&A sessions with writers uh, for the measly sum of £4 a month. Where would you find this deal? At theathletic.com slash totally. Crikey, we've got a whole load of uh, podcasts which you'll be able to enjoy ad-free with a subscription. For example, Totally Scottish Football Show and the Offside Rule WSL Edition. They're both out on Tuesday, as is the Totally Football Show European Edition, which will be looking ahead to the Champions League and Europa League this midweek. And also what happened this weekend, for example, PSG getting beaten by Nantes with a very big story breaking about uh, Di Maria. Anyway, tune in to find out all about that. In the Totally Football League show, which is out Monday, it's hosted by up-and-coming podcast presenter Matt Davis-Adams. What will he be focusing on, Matt? Oh, this I mean, there's so much as usual. We've had two EFL trophy finals over the same weekend, so they'll probably get a mention. Uh, one of the managers in said final, Kenny Jacket, has since been sacked by Portsmouth. So we'll probably talk about that. Uh, we've actually got Ross Embleton on tomorrow, who is the recently deposed Leighton Orient manager. So he's joining me, Adrian Clark of this parish and Michelle Owen from Soccer Saturday and Five Live. Um, we'll probably also talk about Kevin Ellison's goal celebration for Newport, did you see this? Mm. Uh, this is you're obliged to um, give him the prefix. Forty-two-year-old Kevin Ellison uh, scored for Newport against Morecambe. Uh, he doesn't like Derek Adams, the Morecambe manager, who uh, took over whilst Ellison was at Morecambe. Didn't play him, sold him, ran up into his face and shouted something unpleasant. Afterwards, Ellison, pretty unrepentant, he disrespected me. I don't like him. That's how it goes. I won't paper over cracks. I knew something was going to happen today. I had a feeling, and I'm more than happy to do that celebration. I don't care what anyone says. It was a magnificent celebration. He, he made very well, COVID was... safe, but yeah, um, yeah. Made, made his point. better by Adams doing the kind of person on a bus trying to ignore everyone else staring dead straight <laughs> ahead uh, and just imagining that he wasn't there. It was such a good work. It made it so much worse. If you'd, have pre- if you'd have kind of recognised it, it would have owned it, but it was so good. Excellent. Where does it rank, and not just in your top three loudest pandemic bits of on-field shouting, but also in in terms of spiteful celebrations you've you've enjoyed over the years? It was decent, but it's added by aura against Arsenal is is the is it? standard bearer for this, isn't it? Really, having gone the whole length of the pitch and and not even being put off when when seats and things were being thrown at him whilst he was doing it, the commitment to it was total and, and will surely never be matched. Well, he's faced worse, of course, poor chap. But Luis Suarez uh, falling over in front of David Moyes, <laughs> I will always treasure. 
there are a couple involving Ruth Van Nistelrooy. I mean, obviously the Martin Keown one is the more is the more famous one, but then Van Nistelrooy uh, playing for Holland in 2007 against Andorra, he misses a penalty and gets you know one of the Andorran centre backs comes up and you know gives it the big and like ah you've missed. Van Nistelrooy scores later in the game and go scores and goes right up in his face and does the most like patronising celebration and it is it's beautifully petty given you know they're probably winning the game about seven nil. <laughs> Speaking of Petty, of course, uh, PSG with Erling Haaland after he'd had the temerity to mm. score against them and do that Zen pose, and then they all did that when they crushed the young man's dreams. But then this season, do you remember when the Lorient beat Paris Saint Germain and they en masse reenacted Haaland's celebration against the Parisians? I don't know if Nantes perhaps did that on Sunday uh, evening. I'd, I'd like to think that they. They did. Anyway, uh, we'll ask Julian Laurence about that when he turns up in Tuesday's Totally Football Show European edition. But I think with that, we come to the end of today's show. So, listen, thank you so much for being with us. And many, many thanks to Matt Davis-Adams, Charlie Eckershaw, Daniel Storey, and producer Charlie for making it all happen. We'll be back with all of those shows and, of course, another regular Totally on Thursday, rounding up all the European games and looking ahead to a special weekend with the FA Cup quarterfinals and that. So have yourself a super time in the meanwhile. And for now, from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything Totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and follow us at The Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of the Athletics Football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.